0: Chapter 28 of The Netherworld This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tech Savvy. Another World by George Robert Jissing. Chapter 28 The Soup Kitchen. With the first breath of winter, there passes a voice half-menacing, half-mournful, through all the barren ways and phantom-haunted refugees of the Netherworld. Too quickly has vanished the brief season when the sky is clement, and a little food suffices, and the chances of earning that little are more numerous than at other times. This wind that gives utterance to its familiar warning is the want courier of cold and hunger and solicitude that knows not sleep. Will the winter be a hard one? It is the question that concerns this world before all others, that occupies alike the patient workfolk who have yet their home unbroken, the strugglers, for doomed to loss of such scape, the summer gifted them with awe. The hopeless, and the self-abandoned, and the lurking creatures of prey. To all of them the first chill breath from the lowering sky has its voice of admonition. They set their faces, they sigh, or whisper a prayer, or fling out a curse, each according to his nature. And as though this dry fear were not already hard enough, behold from many corners of the land come needy emigrants, prospectless among their own people fearing the dark season which has so often meant for them the end of wages and of food tempted hither by thought that in the shadow of palaces work and charity are both more plentiful vagabonds too no longer able to lie about the country roads creep back to their remembered lairs and join the combat for crusts flung forth by casual hands Day after day distress becomes more grim. One would think that hosts of the weaker combatants might surely find it seasonable to let themselves be trodden out of existence, and so make room for those of more useful sinew. Somehow they cling to life, so few in comparison, yield utterly. The thoughtful in the world about look above them with contentment, and carriage ways are deep with the new fallen snow. Good, here is work for the unemployed ah if the winter did but last a few months longer if the wanted bonds of endurance were but by some freak of nature sensibly overpassed the carriage would find another kind of soothing this winter was the last that shooters gardens were destined to know the leases had all but run out the middlemen were garnering their latest profits and in the spring, there would come a wholesale demolition, and model lodgings would thereafter occupy the site. Meanwhile, the gardens looked their surliest. The walls stood it in a perpetual black sweat. A mouldy reek came from the open doorways. The beings that passed in and out seemed soaked with gloomy moisture, puffed into distortions, hung about with rotting garments. One such was Mrs. Candy Pennyloaf's mother her clothing consisted of a single gown and a shawl made out of the fragments of an old counterpane kind of her clothing with exception of the shoes on her feet those two articles were literally all that covered her bare body for drink was with her reaching the final mania useless to bestow anything upon her straightway it or its value passed over the counter of the beer shop in rosamond street she cared only for beer the brave thick Medicated draught that was so cheap and frenzied her so speedily. Her husband was gone for good. One choking night of November, he beat her to such purpose that she was carried off to the police station as dead. The man effected his escape and was not likely to show himself in the garden again. With her still lived her son Stephen, the potman. His payment was ten shillings a week, with a daily allowance of three pence and he saw to it that there was always a loaf of bread in the room they occupied together. Stephen took things which much philosophy. His mother would, of course, drink herself to death. What was there astonishing in that? He himself had heart disease, and surely enough would drop down dead one of these days, and the one doom was no more to be quarreled with than the other. Penny Loke came to see them at very long intervals. What was the use of making her visits more frequent? She, too, viewed with a certain equanimity the progress of her mother's fate, vain every kind of interposition worse than imprudence to give the poor creature money or money's worth. It could only be heard that the end would come before very long. An interesting house, this in which Mrs. Candy resided, it contained in all seven rooms, and each room was the home of a family. under the roof slept twenty-five persons, men, women, and children. The lowest rent paid by one of these domestic groups was four and sixpence You would have enjoyed a peep into the rare chamber on the ground floor there dwelt a family named hope mr and mrs hope sarah hope age fifteen dick hope age twelve Betsy hope age three the father was a cripple he and his wife occupied themselves in the picking of rags of course at home and i can assure you that the atmosphere of their abode was worthy of its aspect Mr. Hope drank, but not desperately. His fort was a use of language so peculiarly violent that even in the shooter's gardens it gained him a proud reputation. On the slightest excuse he would threaten to brain one of his children, to disembowel another, to gouge out the eyes of the third. He showed much ingenuity in bearing the forms of menace punishment. Not a child in the gardens, but was constantly threatened by its parents with a violent death. This was so familiar that it had lost its effect where the nurse or mother in the upper world cries, "I shall scold you in the neither, the phrase is "I'll knock your head off two I shall be very angry with you in the one sphere corresponds in the other, "I'll murder you." These are conventions matters of no importance, but Mr. Rope was a man of individuality. he could make his family tremble. He could bring Rogers about the door to listen and admire his resources. In another room abode a mother with four children. This woman drank moderately, but was very conscientious in dispatching her three younger children to school. True, there was just a little inconvenience in this punctuality of hers. At all events, from the youngster's point of view, or only on the first three days of the week, at day, the slightest chance of a mouthful of breakfast before they departed never mind i'll have some dinner for you the parent was wont to say common enough in the board schools this pursuit of knowledge on an empty stomach but then the end is so inestimable yet another home it was tenanted by two persons only they appeared to be man and wife but in the legal sense were not so nor did they for a moment seek to deceive their neighbors with the female you're slightly acquainted Kristen Suki Jellup, she first became Mrs. Jack Bartley, and now, for Percy's sake, was styled Mrs. Hayes Suki, had strayed onto a downward path. Conscious of it, she abandoned herself to her taste for strong drink, and braved out of her degradation. Jealousy of Clem Peckover was the first cause of discord between her and Jack Bartley, a robust young woman. She finally sent Jack about his business by literal force of arms, and entered into an alliance with Ned Higgs, a notorious flash the captain of a gang of young ruffians who, at this date, were giving much trouble to the Clerkenwell police. Their specialty was a skillful use, as an offensive weapon of a stout leathern belt heavily buckled. Mr. Higgs boasted that, with one stroke of his belt, he could, if it seemed good to him, kill his man but the fitting opportunity for this display of prowess had not yet offered now it happened that at the time of her making jane snowden's acquaintance miss land was particularly interested in shooter's gardens and the immediate vicinity she had associated herself with certain ladies who undertook the control of a soup kitchen in the neighbourhood and as the winter advanced she engaged jane in this work of charity it was a good means, as Michael Snowden agreed, of enabling the girl to form acquaintances among the very poorest, those whom she hoped to serve effectively, not with aid of money alone, but by her personal influence. And I think it would be worthwhile to dwell a little on the story of the same soup kitchen. It is significant and shall take the place of abstract comment on Miss Land's philanthropic enterprises. The kitchen had been doing successful work for some years the society which established it entrusted its practical conduct to very practical people a man and wife who were themselves of the world and knew the ways thereof the pea were of excellent quality two pence a quart was the price at which the spirit could be purchased one penny if the ticket from a member of the committee were presented and sometimes as much as five hundred quarts would be sold in a day satisfactory enough this and the people came with complaints saying that they were tired of this particular suit and would like another kind for a change mr and mrs batterby with perfect understanding of the situation bade their customers take it or leave it and none or your cheek here or you won't get nothing at all the result was much good humor all around but the present year saw a change in the constitution of the committee two or three philanthropic ladies of great conscientiousness began to inquire busily into the working of the soup-kitchen, and they soon found reason to be altogether dissatisfied with Mr. and Mrs. Vatterby. No, no, these managers were of too coarse a type. They spoke grossly. What possibility of their exerting a humanizing influence on the people to whom they dispensed soup? Soup and refinement must be disseminated at one at the same time, over the same counter mr and mrs batterby were dismissed and quite a new order of things began not only were the ladies zealous for a high ideal in the matter of soup distributing they also aimed at practical economy in the use of funds. having engaged a cook after their own hearts and acting upon the advice of competent physiologists they proceeded to make a stock out of sheep's and bullock's heads Moreover, they ordered their pea from the city, thus getting them at two shillings a sack less than the price formerly paid by batterbys to a dealer in Clerkenwell. But alas, these things could not be done secretly. The story leaked out. Shooter's Gardens in the vicinity broke into the most excited feeling. I did not tell you that neither world would consume, when others supply it, nothing but the very finest quality of food, that the heads of sheep and bullocks were peculiarly offensive to its stomach that a saving affected on sacks of pea outrages its dearest sensibilities what was the result shooters gardens convinced of the fraud practiced upon them nobly brought back their quarts of soup to the kitchen and with proud independence of language demanded to have their money returned on being met the refusal they "What well, thank you emptied the soup on to the floor and went away with heads exalted who asked for the indignation of miss Lamb and the other ladies this is their gratitude now if you or i had been there what an opportunity for easing our minds gratitude madames you have ventured upon this work with expectation of gratitude and can you not perceive that these people of shooters gardens are poor besotted disease struck creatures of whom in the vast scarcely a human quality is to be expected have you still to learn what this nether world has been made by those who belong to the sphere of it? Gratitude, co. Nay, do you be grateful that these hapless, half women do not turn and rend you, present, they satisfied themselves with insolence. Take it silently, and you, who at all events hold the same count of their dire state, and endeavor to feed them without arousing their animosity. Well, the kitchen threatened to be a failure. It turned out that the cheaper pea were, in fact, of inferior quality, and the ladies hastened to go back to the dealer in Cracow. This was something, but now came a new trouble. A complaint with which Mr. and Mrs. Batterby had known so well how to deal revived in the view of the concessions made by the new managers. Shooter's Gardens would have no more pea; let some other vegetable be used. Again, the point was conceded. A trial was made of barley soup. Shooter's Gardens came. looked, smiled and shook their heads. They don't look nice, was their comment. They would none of it. For two or three weeks, just as this crisis in the kitchen's fate, Jane Snowden attended with Miss land to help in the dispensing of the decoction. Jane was made very nervous by the disturbances that went on, but she was able to review the matter at issue in a far more fruitful way than Miss land and other ladies. Her opinion was not asked, however, in the homely gray dress with her modest retiring manner her gentle diffident countenance she was taken by the customers for a paid servant and if it ever happened that she could not supply a can of soup quickly enough sharp words reached her ear now then you girl there are you going to keep me all day i've got something else to do but stand here and jane by her timid hastening confirmed the original impression With the result that she was treated yet more unceremoniously next time of all forms of insolence there is none more flagrant than that of the degraded poor receiving charity which they have come to regard as a right jane did speak at length miss land had called to see her in hanover street seated quietly in her own parlor with michael snowden to approve with him she had already discussed the matter jane ventured softly to compare the present state of things and that of former winters as described to her by various people wasn't it rather a pity she suggested that the old people were sent away you think so returned miss land with the air of one to whom a novel thought is presented you really think so miss Snowdon. they got on well with everybody jane continued and don't you think it's better miss land for everybody to feel satisfied but really mr batterby used to speak so very harshly he destroyed their self-respect i don't think they minded it said jane with simple good faith and i'm always hearing them wish she was back instead of the new managers i think we shall have to consider this remarked the lady thoughtfully considered it was and with the result that the batterbys before long found themselves in the old position uproariously welcomed by shooters gardens in a few weeks the soup was once more concocted of familiar ingredients and customers as often as they grumbled had the pleasure of being rebuked to it was with anything but a cheerful heart that jane went through his initiation into the philanthropic life her brief period of joy and confidence was followed by a return of anxiety which no resolve could suppress it was not only that the ideals to which she strove to form herself made no genuine appeal to her nature the imperative hunger of her heart remained unsatisfied at first, when the assurance received from Michael began to lose a little of its sustaining force, she could say to herself, patience, patience, be faithful, be trustful, and your reward will soon come. Nor would patience have failed her had but the current of life flowed on in the old way. It was the introduction of new and disturbing things that proved so great a taste of fortitude. Those two successive absences of Sydney on the appointed evening were strangely unlike him but perhaps could be explained by the unsettlement of his removal his manner when at length he did come proved that the change in himself was still proceeding moreover the change affected michael who manifested the increase of mental trouble at the same time that he yielded more and more to physical infirmity the letter which sidney wrote after receiving joseph snowdon's confidential communications was despatched two days later he expressed himself in carefully chosen words but the purpose of the letter was to make known that he no longer thought of jane save as a friend and the change in her position had compelled him to take another view of his relations to her than that had confided to michael at danbury most fortunately he added no utterance of his feelings had ever escaped him to jane herself and henceforth he should be still more useful to avoid any suggestion of more than brotherly interest in very deed nothing was altered he was still her steadfast friend and would always aid her to his utmost in the work of her life. That Sidney could send his letter, after keeping it in reserve for a couple of days, proved how profoundly his instincts were revolted by the difficulties and the ambiguity of his position. It had been bad enough when only his own conscience was in play. The dialogue with Joseph, following upon Bessie Bias's indiscretion, threw him wholly off his balance, and he could give no weight to any consideration but the necessity of recovering self-respect. Even in the sophistry of that repeated statement that he had never approached Jane as a lover did not trouble him in face of the injury to his pride. Every word of Joseph Snowden's transparently artful things was a sting to his sensitiveness. The sum excited him to loathing. It was as though the corner of curtain had been raised, giving him a glimpse of all the wild greed, the base machination hovering about this fortune that Jane was to inherit. Of Scrofton he knew nothing but his recollection of Peckover's was vivid enough to suggest what part Mrs. Joseph Snowden was playing in the present intrigues. He felt convinced that in the background were other beasts of prey, watching with keen, envious eyes. A sudden revelation was a shock from which he could not very really soon recover. He seemed to himself to be in a degree contaminated. He questioned his most secret thoughts again and again, recognizing the torment the fears which had already been in him back he desired to purify himself by some unmistakable action that which happened he had anticipated on receipt of the letter michael came to see him he found the old man waiting in front of the house when he returned to red lion street after his work the conversation that followed was a severe test of Sidney's resolve had michael disclosed the fact of his private understanding with jane Sidney would probably have yielded but the man gave no hint of what he had done partly because he found it difficult to make the admission, partly in consequence of an indecision in his own mind with regard to the very point at issue. Though agitated by the consciousness of suffering in store for Jane, his thoughts disturbed by the derangement of the part of his plan, he did not feel that Sidney's change of mind greatly affected the plan itself. Age had cooled his blood. Enthusiasm had made personal interest of comparatively small account to him. He recognized his granddaughter's feelings. He could not appreciate its intensity. Its supreme significance, and Kirkwood made a show of explaining himself, saying that he shrank from that form of responsibility. That such a marriage suggested to him many an insuperable embarrassment. Michael began to reflect that the perchance that this was just the With household and family cares, would Jane devote herself to the great work after the manner of his idea? Had he not been tempted by his friendship for Sydney? To Had he not been tempted by his friendship for Sydney to introduce into his scheme what was really an incompatible element? Was it not decidedly infinitely better that jane should be unmarried? Michael had taken the last step in that process of dehumanization which threatens idealists of his type. He had reached at length the pass of those frenzied votaries of the supernatural creed who exact from their disciples the sacrifice of every human pity. Returning home, he murmured to himself again and again, she must not marry. She must overcome his desire of the happiness such an ordinary woman may enjoy. For my sake, and for the sake of her suffering fellow-creatures, Jane must win this victory over herself." He purposed speaking to her, but put it off from day to day. Sydney paid his visits as usual, and tried desperately to behave as though he had no trouble. Could he have divined why it was that Michael had ended by accepting his vague pretenses with apparent calm, indignation, wrath, would have possessed him? He believed, however, that the old man, out of the kindness, subdued what he really felt. Sydney's state was pitiable. He knew not whether he more shrank from the thought of being infected with Joseph Snowden's baseness or despised himself for his attitude to Jane. Despicable entirely had been his explanations to Michael, but how could he make them more sincere? To tell the whole truth, to reveal Joseph's tactics, would be equivalent to taking a part in the dirty contents. Michael would probably do him justice, but who could say how far Joseph's machinations were becoming effectual? The slightest tink of uncertainty in the old man's thought and he, Kirkwood, become a plotter like the others, meeting minded with countenance. There will be no possibility of perfect faith between men until there is no such thing as money. Hm. and when is that likely to come to pass? Thus he epigrammatized to himself one evening. Savasily enough, as with head bent forward, he plodded to Red Lion Street. Someone addressed him. He looked up and saw Jane. Seemingly, it was a chance meeting but she put a question at once almost as though she had been waiting for him have you seen pennyloaf lately mr kirkwood pennyloaf the name suggested bob Hewitt. who he again suggested john Hewitt, and so sydney fell upon thoughts of someone who two days ago had found refuge in john's room. to michael he had said nothing but what he knew concerning clara a fresh occasion of uneasy thought bob Hewitt, so john said had no knowledge of his sister's situation Otherwise, Pennyloaf might have come to know about it, and in that case, perchance, Jane herself. Why not? Into what a wretched muddle of concealments and inconsistencies and insincerities had he fallen. It's far too long since I saw her, he replied, in that softened tone which he found it impossible to avoid when his eyes met Jane's. She was on her way home from the soup kitchen, where certain occupations had kept her much later than usual. This, however, was far out of her way, and Sidney remarked on the fact, perversely, when she had offered this explanation of her meeting him. Jane did not reply. They walked on together towards Islington. "'Are you going to help at that place all the winter?' he inquired. "'Yes, I think so.' If he had spoken his thought, he would have railed against the soup kitchen and all that was connected with it. So far had he got in his revolt against circumstances. Jane's mission was hateful to him he could not bear to think of her handing soup over a counter to ragged wretches you're nothing like as cheerful as you used to be he said suddenly and all but roughly why is it what a question jane reddened as she tried to look at him with a smile no words would come to her tongue do you go anywhere else besides to to that place not often she had accompanied Miss Lant on a visit to some people in Shooter's Gardens. Sidney bent his brows. A nice spot, Shooter's Gardens. The houses are going to be pulled down, I'm glad to say, continued Jane. Miss Lant thinks it will be a good opportunity for helping out a few of the families into a better lodgings. We're going to buy furniture for them. So many have as good as none at all, you know. It'll be a good start for them, won't it? Sydney nodded he was thinking of another family who already owed their furniture to jane's beneficence though they did not know it mind you don't throw away kindness on worthless people he said presently we can only do our best and hope they'll keep comfortable for her own sakes yes yes well i'll say good night to you here go home and rest you look tired He no longer called her by her name Tearing himself away with a last look, he raged inwardly that so sweet and gentle a creature should be condemned to such a waste of a young life. Jane had obtained what she came for. At times the longing to see him grew insupportable, and this evening she had yielded to it, going out of her way in the hope of encountering him as he came from work. He spoke very strangely. What did it all mean? And when would this winter of suspense give sign of vanishing before sunlight?' End of chapter twenty-eight